Hey, this is Aman Mazingo from the AfroTales Podcast, where I share myths and legends from the African diaspora in the Americas and the Caribbean, like Kat Scanella from the American South, Don Antano from Puerto Rico, and of course, the two infamous, Anansi and Brother Rabbit. So if you would like to join me on this adventure, find me everywhere at AfroTales Podcast. That's AfroTales Podcast. Can't wait to see you on the board. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa. I'm your host, Andy. Two episodes ago, we focused on a series of wars fought by the 7th Ashantehene, or Sebonzo. After defeating two prolonged rebellions in the south and capturing a British fort along the way, he turned to the northwest and forced the kingdom of Jiaman into submission. So, with his enemies defeated, Osebonso can rest easy, right? Well, no. Because a series of events transpiring thousands of miles away from Ashanti, in the British Isles, would ensure that the seemingly finally resolved relationship between the Ashanti and the British merchants of the coast would not stay healthy. This episode, we resume our main narrative and explore the lead-up to and events of the first true clash between the Ashanti and British empires. Season 3, Episode 16, The First Anglo-Ashanti War. When did the colonization of Ghana start? I mean, most events in history typically have a pretty firm starting and ending date, right? Or at least a general short list of best starting dates. The Ashanti Empire, for example, was either born in 1695, with the return of Osetutu to his home city of Kumasi, or in 1701, with the victory over the Danshira at the Battle of Fayasi. So, what about the colonization of Ghana? I mean, anyone familiar with African history knows that basically the entire continent was, at one point or another, colonized by European empires, and Ghana was no different. So, when did that truly happen? Now, there are a few dates that get thrown around for when the colonization of Ghana truly began. I've seen the claim before that it started all the way back in 1471, when a Portuguese ship landed near modern-day Cape Coast, and the first Europeans set foot on what would become Ghanaian soil. Or maybe you prefer the date of 1481, when the first permanent European trading fort was established by the Portuguese at Elmina. However, I would argue that this date is far too early. In fact, I would argue that, so far in this season, we have yet to truly see any form of colonization take place in Ghana. You see, one of the core elements of colonialism is that one country will claim to hold a right to sovereignty over another. The colonized region must be dependent on and dominated by the colonizing power. And from 1471 until the time of our episode, this hasn't been the case. So far, European influence in Ghana has been limited exclusively to trade factories, another name for those European forts that we've seen pop up on the show every once in a while. But even these trade factories were not exactly colonies. They were usually not the property of the state themselves, but were owned by private charter companies, for-profit organizations sponsored by but not owned by the government. These companies possess little, if any, sovereignty even over their fortresses, much less the land outside. Technically, they did not even own the land that the fortress was built on, or even the fortress itself, but were leasing the fortress as part of the deal with a local kingdom in exchange for exclusive trading rights to the area. It's not like they didn't try to exercise power over these regions. In numerous cases, European merchant companies tried and failed to further their hegemony over areas they controlled. They were never successful. One of the best examples of this failure took place in the late 18th century. Ogoa, the old fonty name for the city of Cape Coast, was home to the de facto headquarters of the British Company of African Merchants. Despite the company having a treaty of exclusive trading with the population of Ogoa, 
foreign imports littered the city, as cheaper American, French, and Dutch rum and guns were in high demand. On one occasion, the British governor attempted to speak to the Oguahene about this problem, and the Oguahene essentially laughed him off. Much to the frustration of British merchants, they held basically no hegemony outside of the walls of their fortress, and held no material control over what the people of Ogoa could import or export. But that was then. As we'll see in this episode, times are changing. I'd argue that the year in which this episode takes place, 1821, marks the true beginning of European colonialism in Ghana. However, while today many think of the historical colonial powers of Europe as insurmountable global forces, historical bulldozers that trampled non-Western powers without breaking a sweat, today we'll see just how untrue that idea is. But times change doesn't really mean anything. After all, something has to actually be behind this shift in the relationship between the kingdoms of Ghana and the Europeans on the coast. So, what was behind this complete transformation of the politics of coastal West Africa between the 18th and 19th centuries? To fully understand this shift, we need to understand the origin of the British trade factories on the Ghanaian coast in the first place. All the way back in 1660, when the Denshira were still the undisputed hegemons and the Ashanti Empire did not yet exist, the British government renewed the Navigation Acts. The Navigation Acts were a protectionist law which strongly regulated foreign trade, making it more difficult and expensive for British merchants to trade with other European countries. The effects of this law were incredibly wide-reaching, and perhaps no area was affected more than British colonies in the Caribbean and North America which depended on trade with the Dutch to fill their plantations with slave labor. So, to fill this need, the British government decided that it was time for their own merchants to insert themselves into the transatlantic slave trade directly. In 1663, the British government ordered the creation of a chartered company, known as the Royal African Company, which would hold a state-mandated monopoly on the trade of African gold, ivory, animal hides, precious timber, and, most importantly, enslaved people. The British then captured a Dutch castle at Ogoa, renamed it to Cape Coast, and began trading. Based in the castle at Cape Coast, the company's profits were at first enormous, and it continued to expand rapidly. Six more forts were built or captured in modern-day Ghana, one at Waida, and another far to the north at the mouth of the Gambia River. Throughout its lifespan, the company became the primary beneficiary in the trade of human misery purchasing and transporting more enslaved people than any other country, company, or institution in the history of mankind. However, this profiteering could not last forever. Later financial problems, caused by wars with the Dutch, piracy, fluctuations in the price of slaves, and severe financial mismanagement caused the company's profits to crash. Most especially devastating for the company was the fact that, for the first time, by the early 18th century, the enslaved population of the New World was self-sustaining. That is to say, more enslaved people were born in the Americas than died there each year, lowering the demand for new slaves from West Africa. The company tried to diversify its interests, focusing less on slave exports and more on other products, especially gold. But these sources of revenue were tiny compared to the company's once grand profits off the slave trade. Eventually, the flailing Royal African Company was dissolved by British law in 1750. In its place, a new company was created the British Company of African Merchants, often called the African Company for short. The African Company re-emphasized the company's role as slave traders, and luckily for them, a great surge in the demand for sugar had reinvigorated the expansion of plantations in the Caribbean. As a result, demand for enslaved laborers skyrocketed as well. And throughout most of our podcast, this has been the status quo. The African Company, competing with their Danish and Dutch counterparts, have sat passively on the coast, 
profiting immensely from the trade of human beings for salt, rum, guns, and other finished products, but still utterly dependent on their Ghanaian hosts. When their hosts, like the Fanti, Ga, or Aoween, were defeated or made subservient to the Ashanti, the European merchants quickly followed suit, signing treaties of subservience to the Ashantehane like we saw at the end of the 1807 and 1811 wars. So, getting back to our original question, what changed? Well, the root of this transformation again occurred outside of Ghana. In 1803, Denmark became the first country in Europe to legally abolish their participation in the transatlantic slave trade. While slavery as an institution would continue in Danish colonies in the Caribbean, the importation of new enslaved people from Africa was now illegal. Any Danish ship transporting enslaved people was also in violation of Danish law, and their captain could be prosecuted. Britain followed suit in 1807, and the Dutch in 1814 with slavery remaining legal in their colonies, but the transportation or sale of enslaved people now a violation of law. For humanity and morality, these laws were a step in the right direction. Slavery and all of the human suffering associated with it persisted, but now fewer countries were allowing their merchants to be accomplices in the miserable Middle Passage. For the African company, it was a disaster. The slave trade still made up a bulk of their profit, so the abolition of the institution guaranteed their eventual financial ruin. At first, though, the decision didn't affect either the British company nor the Ashanti much at all. Laws, after all, are just words on paper if they're not enforced. So, despite the slave trade technically being abolished, many British, Dutch, and Danish merchants continued operating as illegal slave traders. They couldn't sell to the British or Danish colonies anymore nor could they sell to the young nation of the United States, which also outlawed the slave trade in 1807. But the French, Spanish, and Portuguese were still willing buyers, as well as the many powerful elites within British colonies in the United States who were willing to skirt the law for access to cheaper enslaved people. The British government, upon hearing news that British ships were still regularly and illegally transporting slaves, tried to enforce the law. In 1808, a British maritime patrol was permanently stationed off the coast of West Africa, with the mission of intercepting British slave smugglers. Officially, of course, the African company condemned these illegal slave merchants, but, of course, behind closed doors, they quietly encouraged the practice. To further combat the illegal slave trade, the British government turned to African kingdoms. New treaties were signed with numerous West and Central African kingdoms, which prohibited these kingdoms from selling slaves to British merchants. In 1817, a government representative signed a treaty with the Ashanti on behalf of the British African Company. In exchange for the Ashanti pledging not to sell slaves to British merchants, the treaty reaffirmed for a third time Ashanti sovereignty over the Ghanaian coast. However, even though the Ashanti government held up their end of the deal, many private Ashanti businessmen continued selling enslaved people to British merchants. Even with these treaties, patrols, and promises from the company, illegal slave trading remained a problem and everyone knew that, despite their insistence on their own innocence in the matter, that the African company was part of the problem, not part of the solution. After four more years of playing cat and mouse with their charter company, the British government had had enough and put its foot down. In 1821, all of the Company of African Merchants' assets were nationalized. Its ships were requisitioned into the Royal Navy, its treasury was seized, and its forts were annexed by the British government. And that last little bit is where the troubles begin. You see, the company's forts were annexed by the British government, but remember, these forts had never really belonged to the African company to begin with. The company had never claimed to own any territory on the coast, at least the land that the forts were on with local kings in exchange for money and protection, and affirmed this relationship through treaties. But here's the thing. 
The British government reasoned that because those treaties were signed with the African Company, which no longer existed, that they had no obligation to respect them. Therefore, in the minds of the British government, former company fortresses and their surroundings were now British territory. Those 1807 and 1811 war treaties, as well as the 1817 treaty where the British company recognized Ashanti sovereignty over the coast in three separate occasions, might as well be toilet paper. In my opinion, 1821 is the true benchmark for when British, and as an extension European, imperialism in Ghana begins. With the British government's decision to annex the African company's leased territories, the paradigm of the British presence in Ghana, and West Africa as a whole, permanently shifted. The days of the British leasing land to trade in Ghana were over. While at first they could find some degree of alignment, the British and Ashanti foreign policy goals were now firmly and unquestionably opposed. They both desired uncontested sovereignty over the southern coast. Now, war is never truly inevitable. While the British and Ashanti now possessed overlapping claims, they could theoretically sort things out diplomatically, agree to a new status quo, and peace would prevail. And this wasn't far-fetched. At least officially, both governments favored the strategy of a peaceful solution to these overlapping claims. However, if peace between the two empires was to prevail, the British picked maybe the single worst man to serve as their representative in the region. Charles McCarthy had been the governor of the British colony of Sierra Leone since 1819. The colony, which was the first major British colony in West Africa, was created basically as a basket for the British to leave free blacks. If a slave ship was seized and its inhabitants declared free, they wouldn't be sent back to where they came from, but instead to Sierra Leone. Some of you might be aware of the British doctrine that American slaves who defected to the British army during the American Revolution were to be free. Well, many of these formerly enslaved people ended up in Sierra Leone. Are you formerly enslaved and bought your freedom? Sierra Leone. Are you a free black person who happens to live in London? Well, you might just end up in Sierra Leone. As a result, the colony formed a genuinely fascinating culture, which combined elements from all over West Africa, as well as British and American culture. If you're interested in learning more about the origins and early history of this British colony of formerly enslaved Africans, you can learn more about the early years of the Sierra Leone colony in the latest premium episode on our Patreon. So if this episode interests you, or if you'd like to access our dozens of other premium episodes, or if you'd just like to support this project of free education about African history, you can support the show at patreon.com slash historyofafrica. And to those of you already supporting the show, thank you. Bolstered by the population of incoming free black migrants, Sierra Leone's population soon established itself as the only true British colony in West Africa. And by that I mean, like, more than a single fort or city block. As a result, all of the forts seized from the British Company of African Merchants were put under the closest thing to resemble an arm of the British government, the colonial government of Sierra Leone. That is, McCarthy's government. Before McCarthy arrived on the Gold Coast, tensions were already beginning to run high. As part of their annexation of the forts, the British had sent the Royal African Corps, an army composed primarily of free black or mixed-race British subjects, mostly from the Caribbean under the command of white officers, to ensure their position on the coast. The Royal African Corps arrived at Cape Coast in 1822, and dispersed into the countryside to negotiate treaties of submission with local Fonte kings. According to these treaties, the Fontys would accept a protectorate status under the British. They would maintain local autonomy and control their own domestic law. However, their sovereignty would be surrendered. The British would control the king's foreign policy. They would be dependent on the British for military protection and pledge to act as British allies in any future wars in the region. Almost universally, the Fonty kings reluctantly accepted the British's offer. Ironically, the British owed their success in this venture to, well, who else but Ose Bonso and the Ashanti. 
Two decades ago, if you had told any of these Fonte kings that they would be signing treaties of submission to the British, you know, those weird merchant guys on the coast, they would have laughed at you. The Fonte Confederation was secure. Its government and militias were strong. Why on earth would they surrender their sovereignty to the British, who could barely muster a few hundred soldiers at most to defend their castles on the coast? But, again, that was 1802. This is 1822. The Fonte have been annihilated by two calamitous Ashanti invasions. Their militias were no longer strong. They were practically non-existent. Small collections of unorganized and inexperienced volunteers who could never hope to stand up to the British or Ashanti on their own. Their confederation was not secure. They had been made into a subservient vassal of the Ashanti. I mean, they were truly caught between a rock and a hard place. They could surrender their sovereignty and be subjects of the British, a foreign empire. Or they could refuse and be subject to the Ashanti, a foreign empire. To the Fonte kings, domination by an oppressive foreign empire was inevitable. It was just a question of which one. The few remnants of the Fonte Asafo were integrated into the British African Corps as auxiliaries. After hearing news of the British incursion, Ose Bonso was furious. The British had already pledged to respect his ownership of the coast, and now there were hundreds of men in red uniforms swarming over his territory that they recognized and sowing disloyalty among his subjects. To Osebonso, and it's easy to see why he thought this, it must have seemed like an invasion. He realized that he had to act fast before the entire Fonte region slipped out of his control. He mobilized an army to head south to Abora, the only Fonte city where the Ashanti maintained undisputed control. This Ashanti column made a quick incursion into a Fonte settlement, where they kidnapped one of the leaders of the local Asafo company. The Asafo leader, apparently quite upset with his captivity, made the mistake of uttering a curse with Osebonso's name a capital offense in the Ashanti law code. Despite this offense, the Ashanti army hesitated in executing the man. Rather, they sent word of his capture, as well as the offense he committed and his imminent fate to the British. They received no response, so the Asafo leader was executed. We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame Stories wherever you get your podcasts. Seeing that the Ashanti were serious, the commander of the Africa Corps decided to accept an Ashanti offer to negotiate a diplomatic de-escalation. An Ashanti envoy arrived in Cape Coast and began to negotiate with the British. The envoy demanded for the British to reveal their intentions and to honor the treaties that the Ashanti had signed previously with the Company of African Merchants. The Corps' leadership was intentionally vague in his response as he was simply stalling. McCarthy was en route to Cape Coast on a ship from Sierra Leone, so they would await his arrival before they made any binding promises. Perhaps, if the Corps moved forward with negotiation without McCarthy's presence, it could have led somewhere, but we'll never know. When McCarthy arrived in Cape Coast, he immediately shooed the Ashanti envoys away. In McCarthy's eyes, the Ashanti had already shown their desire for war by executing the Asafo leader, so any further negotiations were pointless. Upon leaving Cape Coast, allegedly one Ashanti envoy told McCarthy that Osebonso's army would drive him into the sea, though it's worth noting that this line appears nowhere in Ashanti recollection of events, so it's probably an embellishment by McCarthy. Osebonso, perhaps eager not to destroy his kingdom's relationship with one of their former trade partners, ordered for another envoy to head to Cape Coast. 
McCarthy, who at this point was firmly committed to war, turned away the envoy immediately. With war now approaching rapidly, Governor McCarthy attended the Fonte Parliament to see who would aid him in the impending conflict. He demanded to know which Fonte kings were truly on his side, and asked who would join him in a grand alliance with the British to fight the Ashanti. All of the kings and nobles in attendance agreed to join, with one exception, the king of Anamabal. The town, if you remember, had been the site of a clash between the British and Ashanti in 1807. This clash had seen thousands of Fonte civilians murdered by the Ashanti army, and the Fonte seeking refuge inside the British fort betrayed and sold into slavery. Is it any wonder, then, that they said, No thanks, we're staying neutral. On the eve of conflict, one final opportunity for peace emerged. The British ambassador in Kumasi, and yes, they had a permanent ambassador, remember, relations weren't always this bad, a man by the name of Joseph Dupuy drew up a treaty at the last minute to try to avert fighting. This treaty would reaffirm Ashanti claims of sovereignty to the coast in exchange for the promise of safety for the region's Fonti inhabitants. The Ashanti Kotoko had agreed to ratify the treaty, but when the treaty arrived at Cape Coast, McCarthy dismissed it out of hand. And, just like that, war was inevitable. With the last olive branch cast aside, both sides considered their strategy. Fearing that Cape Coast was crawling with Ashanti spies, McCarthy decided that his army should depart at night. If they departed at 7 at night, he estimated they would arrive at the Ashanti base at Abora at 4 in the morning. The sleeping Ashanti would be caught by surprise and defeated. Now, this was McCarthy's first mistake. During his time governing Sierra Leone, McCarthy had commanded a few minor wars against the coastal inhabitants of the colony. The kingdoms he had fought were mostly quite small, with populations sometimes little more than 20,000. In many cases, they could rarely mount an army of more than a thousand people, and in many cases, the armies they produced numbered in the hundreds. This experience in Sierra Leone had led to McCarthy developing low expectations for African military capabilities. While he had been informed on multiple occasions about the size and modernity of the Ashanti army, this wasn't enough to outweigh his prejudices. Knowing what we know about the Ashanti army, this will seem ridiculous, but McCarthy really thought that an army of 2,000 men most of whom were poorly equipped and inexperienced Fonte militiamen, was sufficient to defeat the entire Ashanti army. Good luck with that. To make matters worse, as the army departed for Abura, problems became immediately apparent within the British ranks. Unused to the terrain of the forest, the British soldiers struggled to keep a sense of direction. They lacked the necessary number of blades, and were therefore slow in cutting the forest's thick foliage. The British's Fonte allies were equally confused and inefficient in their travel. Many led the British down incorrect paths or in circles. Suspicion soon broke out among the British that the Fonte were, in fact, traitors on the Ashanti payroll. Given the recent history between the Ashanti and Fonte, this seems incredibly unlikely to me. I'm more willing to chalk it up to simple inexperience in the Fonte militiamen. So, as the British and their allies bumbled towards Abura, they caught the attention of Ashanti scouts. The British were far behind their schedule, approaching Abora around six hours after their ETA. So the Ashanti army, fresh and awake after an undisturbed night of encampment, mobilized to meet their enemy in battle. The Ashanti army, built for mobility, moved quickly and quietly through the brush, stalking the British and Fonti convoy. However, the Ashanti commander, the Krontihene Amankwashia, hesitated to attack. When the Ashanti's enemies reached a narrow valley between two hills, they began to squeeze through in single file. Announced through the beat of the talking drums, the Ashanti general ordered his army to charge, and the forward guard unleashed a barrage of musket fire. The British and Fonti, caught in a horrible position, immediately went into a panic. The expedition's captain attempted to restore discipline, ordering his men to return fire, but it was no use. 
the British and their allies dissolved into a hasty retreat, with men desperately retracing their path back to Cape Coast. After the ambush, around 50 British servicemen and Infante militiamen were either killed or missing. Ashanti casualties were practically non-existent. However, this victory was only the first battle of the war, far from its conclusion. As the British expedition limped back into Cape Coast, McCarthy was livid. Seeking revenge, he immediately organized a new, larger expedition. Rather than a single point of attack, this invasion would involve three separate armies. It would also, at the advice of his Fonti allies, place a greater emphasis on mobilizing the Ashanti's internal enemies. The smallest of the three armies would invade the east, just north of Accra, before looping around and attacking the Ashanti behind Abura. Another column of 2,000 men would invade the Ashanti's western coast. There, they hoped to find support among the Wasa and Awin people, and swell their numbers before turning north. Finally, the largest of the three columns would be led by McCarthy himself. At the head of 2,500 men, McCarthy would march north, recruit from the local Tanchira population to swell his numbers, before continuing north, straight to Kumasi. In January of 1824, McCarthy and his two other invasion columns marched into Ashanti territory. In the west, at least, things initially went quite positively for the British. The Wasa, hearing news of the invasion, rose up in revolt against the Ashanti. However, before they met the British, the Wasa came face to face with an Ashanti army. The remaining Wasa rebels ordered a hasty retreat south, making camp at a small town called Insamankau. Soon, they were joined by the British Western Column, who began setting up defensive positions at the town. Meanwhile, the Central Column pushed northward. Almost immediately upon entering Ashanti territory, they encountered a 10,000-strong Ashanti army under the command of the Contihene at the town of Bonsasso. McCarthy had heard, or if you believe his paranoia about Ashanti spies to be accurate, been fed false rumors that many within the Ashanti military were displeased with Osebonso's leadership and planned to defect. As McCarthy and his army approached the Ashanti at Bonsasso, he instructed his musicians to play God Save the King to signal that he was willing to negotiate with defectors. However, McCarthy's hopes were quickly dashed. The Ashanti responded with a talking drum message, which McCarthy's Fonti allies recognized as a call to attack. The British tried to take up defensive positions, but the highly mobile Ashanti units proved overwhelming. The Ashanti forward guard reached the British lines as they were still getting into formation, and began spraying the British with musket fire. The unprepared British were like sitting ducks. McCarthy ordered his column to retreat and regroup with the Western Column at Nsamanko. Under intense Ashanti harassment, the British scrambled in a disorderly retreat to meet their ally, but it was too late. By the time they made it to Insamanko, the column there was already facing an Ashanti attack of their own. As the two British columns combined, things only got worse. Again, the British scrambled to set up a line of defense, but the mobile Ashanti units were too fast. At one point, a British unit attempted to set up a row of bronze cannons to fire grape shot at the Ashanti lines. But before they could get off a single shot, the cannon crew was overwhelmed by Ashanti soldiers. Amankwasha ordered for the Ashanti wings to begin encircling the British. After a few hours of fighting, the British columns were surrounded. Despite having his enemy surrounded, Amankwasha ordered his soldiers to stand back and fight conservatively, only fight as was necessary to keep the British on their toes. Surrounded by the Ashanti, their supply lines were severed, and British gunpowder and ammunition supplies began to dwindle, just as Amankwasha had planned. As the frequency of British musket fire slowed, the Krontihene ordered his army to advance. Panic erupted in the surrounded and unsupplied British army, and many broke ranks trying to flee to no avail. McCarthy himself, barking orders at his men to hold firm, was hit by three musket balls and collapsed. As a Fonti bodyguard tried to carry the injured McCarthy away, an Ashanti soldier spotted him. The soldier pulled out an Akrafana blade, 
stabbed the Fonty bodyguard, and decapitated the wounded Charles McCarthy. With their leader slain, what little morale was left collapsed completely among the British army. Of the roughly 5,000 British Infante soldiers, around 800 managed to slip past Ashanti lines and return to Cape Coast. As news of the colossal defeat returned to Cape Coast, the newly elevated British governor ordered the Eastern Column to retreat. The Ashanti had defeated the attempted British invasion. The defeat at Nsamanko remains the largest British military disaster on the African continent of all time, and the Ashanti's greatest military victory since maybe ever. To add to the British humiliation, the disembodied heads of McCarthy and his officers were taken back to Kumasi as trophies. According to one Brit who was taken as prisoner, the officers' heads were preserved in the Ashanti royal palace by an unknown form of advanced chemical embalming, while McCarthy's skull was hollowed out, coated in gold, and used as a drinking cup. However, before the Ashanti could begin their counteroffensive, unexpected news emerged from the Ashanti royal palace. Ose Bonso, Ashantihane for 21 years, had passed away from natural causes. His reign was defined by internal stability and unprecedented military success, even in the face of massive external challenges with the Fanti, Jiaman, and British wars respectively. His replacement, the youngest of Konodo's sons, Oseya Akoto, will try to fill his brother's enormous shoes. Join us next episode as Oseya Akoto tries to finish what his brother started. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then we would love it if you could support the show. You can do this through supporting us monetarily at patreon.com slash historyofafrica, providing the show with a rating or review on whichever platform you listen on, or sharing the show with anyone who you think might be interested in learning more about African history. This episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayofagbamie, Kevin Johnson, Morgan Blackmore, Sarah Mpenza, Tobias Tunglin, Dimitri, Emmanuel Zaudi, and Alexander Travis, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really means a lot.